In the summer of college, I worked at a camp. I worked over at Haycock Camping Ministries, not too far from here. Uh, and I, I did that all, all four, four summers through college. And it was a week-long overnight camp. So the boys would come on Sunday afternoon. Parents would pick them up on Friday. Uh, and the first year that I did it, I, there was three different age levels. And after the first year, I told the program director, I said, I really don't like working with the younger kids. So I, I really just want the oldest group of kids. And the, the benefit of that to me, you know, you don't have to watch them quite as closely. Uh, but the other benefit that I really enjoyed was we got to do some extra things. Like we got to go rock climbing over at Ralph Stover. We got to shoot shotguns and rifles instead of just BB guns. Uh, and what I love to do every week, my favorite, was canoeing down the Delaware River. I, I no matter how many times I did it, that was like the highlight of my week was just getting out there. Uh, and so, you know, after doing it a very long time, uh, I really got to the point where I realized when you put 12, 13, and 14-year-olds in a canoe, some of them who have never canoed before, some of them who don't know each other, many of them who are distracted by a shiny object, uh, you, you know, Canoeing down the Delaware kind of became like a zigzag, bouncing back and forth off the side of the river. And I realized I don't really need to paddle. I can just kind of put my boat in it and just let myself kind of drift down the river. And I would keep pace with all of these other kids. And I, and I loved it. It was great. The sun was at, and I'm sure a lot of you have probably canoed or if you've ever done tubing, where you do, you just get out there, you close your eyes, and you just kind of like let your hands kind of go through the water. I mean, it is such a relaxing experience. And I really, really loved doing that and just, again, kind of just drifting down uh, the river. Now, as great as that may be, if we apply that to our spiritual context, that's actually the opposite of what we want. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to get into today, uh, is this idea of what happens when we drift. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we actually have five warnings uh, that come out of this. So this is the first warning that the author is going to give. And again, the whole point of Hebrews is trying to point us to the fact that Christ is superior, superior in all things. And again, he's trying to help these Israelites who many have wandered, who are now dispersed throughout the, the, the Roman Empire, who are now struggling with their faith. And he's trying to bring them back and encourage them and remind them that Christ, again, is better than anything you could ever have imagined or understood. Uh, and for a lot of people, you know, we have a very nonchalant, laissez-faire attitude. I'll, I'll get to it later. Uh, I'll, I'll, I won't worry about it now. You know, and, and for some people, when they, they think about Christ and they think about faith, they may think about it for a moment, and, and then it kind of seems to just pass by. And the longer that goes, the less and less they start to think about it. And what the, the author is doing here is he's kind of re-guiding us back to this and saying, wait a minute, we need to seriously consider this message here. And we need to not allow this to happen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Last week, we set the tone of the book that he talked about the prophets and the angels who were both messengers who brought a revelation from God uh, to this world. And what he did was proved how Christ was superior in revelation to both the prophets 
and to the angels, two of these groups of people that were held in very high regard. And so he's actually going to have a continuation here from chapter 1 here to chapter 2. So this is not a separate warning piece. This is actually just building off of what he has just spoken. So here we have in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away, for since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received, it's just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, and God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will." Okay, so again, right there, right away, he says, therefore, what we have just heard. He said, previously, what I've just spoken about, I'm going to continue with this conversation. Again, based off the prophets, off of the angels, we need to pay careful attention to it. And I really kind of love this feeling here of what the author is saying. It's like, hey, I've got this entire book I'm going to share, chapter one, and right away, he's like, stop the presses. Stop right now. Everybody pay attention. We're not moving any forward until we are absolutely clear in what we've just talked about. So I need your eyes, your ears, I need all of your attention on me as we go through this. That's kind of the tone that he's setting with this. This is so important that after one chapter of his book, he's like, we can't move any further now until we've discussed this even further. Because again, this is absolutely essential and crucial to understanding this message, okay? So that, that's where he lays this out. He, he says, I want you to make sure that you're paying attention because the fear of this is that you're going to drift. Now, I'm going to come back to this idea of drifting here, uh, but I want to lay out some other principles of this passage, and then I'll come back to why he is so fearful of the drift that may occur. So in verses 2 and 3, again, he's connecting back to what we've previously discussed. He's going back to the angels here. And remember what we said last week. They've put a lot of stock, a lot of faith, a lot of authority, a lot of power into the angels. And we talked about how in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found all of these other non-biblical scriptures that, that communicated their emphasis on who the angels were. They, they've elevated them to a position higher than they should have been, ultimately higher than Christ. And so he brings them back here, and he says, not only the angels, but he also the law, right? The law that was given to Moses was held in such high regard that for the Jews, right, their salvation for many of them was adhering to all of the commands into the law, right, and that God would find blessing upon them. And so he, he, he's saying, look, we've got to correct this. It's not the angels, it's not the law. Okay, two major things that Christ has to break through and guide them, redirect them back to Christ as being superior. But the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and we see that in the scriptures here, Galatians and Acts, that in some capacity, the angels had some hand in bringing this message to Moses, right? The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. And you who have received the law that was given through angels, but not obeyed it. Okay, so again, very highly thinking of these angels. And he says, listen, if these angels brought a message that you value, he says there was consequences for breaking that law that came through the angels. Okay, there is punishment that comes through breaking that law with the angels. 
Okay? And then in Deuteronomy 28, when, when Moses is, is about to bring his people into the promised land, uh, he really kind of has a retelling of their history, a retelling of the law. And he says, before we go in, we have to make sure we're all on the same page here, that we understand clearly what this law establishes. So in, verse, in chapter 28, he goes 1 through 14, and he says, if you obey the law, here is all of these blessings that you will have. But then he spends the next 54 verses talking about if you violate this law, here are the consequences that you're going to have. So think about that idea. I give you 14 blessings, and I give you 54 verses of cursing. Right? He's clearly placing an emphasis on one over the other of what we should and should not be doing. Okay? But he, again, he's saying, look, if, if this is what the angels are talking about, we have to understand how severe this is. Uh, one commentator said, Observe the severi- uh, severest punishment God has ever afflicted upon sinners is no more than what sin deserves. It is a just recompense of reward. Punishments are as just, as much due to sin, as rewards are to obedience. Yea, more due than rewards are to imperfect obedience. So essentially what he's saying here is, if we are rewarded right, for, for our obedience, we are actually given more so justice in our disobedience and the consequences that we face. Okay? We're actually given more over to that when we disobey than more when we actually obey in that sense. Okay? And he says, again, I've just proved it to you that, the, that Christ is better than this message that the angels have given to us. So if you are concerned about violating the laws of the angels, you better be concerned about violating the law of Christ and the message of Christ. Okay, so that, that's what he gets at here and he's trying to say. And I love how he says that in verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Some of your passages may have the word neglect, but it's just that idea that you pay no attention to. If you do not pay attention to this message, how do you think you are going to escape the punishment that's going to be had? And he uses the word there, great salvation. And the reason why he throws that word great in there, because again, it's a comparison to the message of Christ versus the message of the angels. That if you thought the angels were bringing salvation, Christ is bringing a greater salvation for you. So again, he's identifying for the readers here that this message and the violation of this message has very serious consequences. Okay? Because the reason is the angels are bringing for them a law that was earthly, right? that, that it had earthly rewards and consequences. But the message of Christ is not just an earthly one for our benefit here and now, but more so it is a spiritual reward and consequences. Because a violation of Christ's message is a violation of the holiness of God and therefore brings upon the consequence of spiritual death to us. 
So that's why there's such severity in what we're looking at. And so if we pay no attention to the message of Christ, we're not just losing the blessings of this earth. We're not just losing the blessing of life, but we are forfeiting the spiritual kingdom of heaven that lasts for an eternity. And what we are given instead is the weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal condemnation in hell, as we're told in Matthew 8, 12. That is the severity of the message that is being brought. And there's no escaping this, guys. There is no second chance. Okay? There is no purgatory that we can pray you out of to get you into heaven. There is no reincarnation that exists that if you make a mistake, you come back and you have a chance to do life over again. You have one life to live and you have one life that is going to die, and you will stand before the Heavenly Father at that point, and then you will be judged according to what your faith and belief is upon this message of Christ. Okay? So if we think there's any other alternative to it, that is a lie, and that is not found within the Scriptures of God. And so, either you're going to accept... What Christ has done on the cross, paying the penalty for the consequences of our sins, of what we deserve, or you are going to reject that message and have to bear the eternal condemnation that awaits you. Now, this is not all gloom and doom here because this is not the desire of the author. He just is making very, very clear to us the reality of what faces us. But he wants to point us back to Christ here. He, he, he's pleading on our behalf that we understand. And he says, look, I want you to have confidence in this message, though, of Christ. This, this, this message of, of a crucified Savior, I want you to be confident in several things. He says, one, it was announced by Christ himself. Remember Christ who came and he spoke to us through his teachings? Remember that guy? And we heard him talk? And re remember when he went to the cross and he gave up his life? Remember, remember three days later when he rose from the dead and all of the things that he said true were now validated by that resurrection? We can have confidence in what Christ is saying because we witnessed it ourselves. And if that isn't enough, he said Christ gave that message to his apostles and he sent his apostles out to go and make disciples in the name of Christ. And all of the things that they have taught you were what words that were taught by Christ. And he says, if we have a relationship with them, and we believe in them, and we have confidence in their message, then we should have confidence in the message of Christ as well. And he says, and if we forget too, let us not forget the miracles that Christ had. Remember, remember when he turned water into wine? Remember when, when he healed the royal official's son? You guys remember that? Yeah, yeah, we remember that. Re remember when he, he filled our nets so much with fish that we could barely pull them in? It, it took other boats to go. Yeah, yeah, we remember that. Re remember the woman who had been bleeding for years and he healed her? Yeah, we remember that. Remember, remember the, Peter's mom? Remember when she had a fever? Yeah. Remember she was on the verge of death and, she, and Christ healed her? Yeah, we remember that. Remember when he healed the leper? Remember when he gave the, the mute back his voice? Remember when he let the blind see? Remember the cripple who got up and walked? Yeah, we remember all of that. And he said, remember when he healed Lazarus and he brought him back from the dead? Yes, this is the confidence you should have in Christ. That this message 
is much more important, and the consequences are so much more severe. Because it's a message of a great salvation. And he says one other thing. He says the working of the Holy Spirit. He said when the Holy Spirit came and dwelled us at Pentecost, what did you notice? What did you see? You saw a transformation of scared disciples that have now turned into emboldened believers willing to die for their faith. These are the people who are within your church. These are the people who love and care and encourage you. And these are the very same people who are professing the very same message here of Christ. So if you have confidence, let this be your confidence that the message of Christ is true, that the message of Christ is real, and that you need to take seriously the stock of what is being said here. And so now we need to go back to the beginning part where he talks about this idea of drifting. Because what this is, it is not a message of fear, but it's a loving warning on our behalf. He wants us to desperately understand what might happen if we don't pay attention to this message. So the word drift is used in terms of this idea that there's kind of something floating down a river, like a piece of wood. And it just kind of floats haphazardly down the river. And when he, he, he talks about this drifting, what he's saying is, you know, at one point, the message was proclaimed to you, loud and clear, right in your face. You heard it. But over time, that message begins to fade. And it gets softer and softer and softer in our minds. You know, when we would go canoeing, as I said, down the, down the Delaware, Every now and then, one of the cool things that would happen is we'd see these little river otters running up and down the banks. You know, and a lot of times, like when you go see an animal, it's like, you know, at the zoo especially, like they're always just laying around not doing anything, and it's kind of disappointing. These river otters were always so full of life. I mean, up and down, chasing each other, diving in, hopping out, and it was great. Everybody's like, oh, guys, river otters, and everybody be looking, and you're like, you know, you're paddling, and you're watching, you're watching, you're watching, and, and, and then, you know, you can't see them quite as well. And as you get further and further, you're trying to strain your neck a little bit more to the point eventually that those river otters would have been out of sight. And then you just went on about your day, not giving any more thought to what you had just seen. And, and that's what happens here with this message of Christ. We may pay attention to it, we may look at it, observe it, think about it, but as we continue to float down that river, the message becomes a distant memory in our mind if we don't take stock, if we don't heed to what's being said. And, and, and that warning here, we have to remember that Satan's a clever one, right? So Satan is, is a master of deception and lies, Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In 2 Corinthians, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading 
as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerading as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that it is her servants also who masquerade as servants of righteousness. See, most of us will never commit such a heinous crime in our lives that our face will be plastered on the news. That is most likely not going to happen to us. And, and when those kind of things happen in our lives, those are the prodigal son moment where we have realized, I have made a mistake and I have messed up. And if Satan wanted to destroy us, that could be a way to do it. But I think he understands that the better way is not the heinous crime, but it's the drifting away that little by little takes place. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letter. And in it, the, the, the senior devil, the senior angel or demon, if you will, uh, is trying to help his nephew, Wormwood, help lead believers astray from God, to help point them away from the gospel. And he has a quote in there. And he says, The safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope the soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. It's the gradual road to hell that little by little we walk away and before we realize it's too late and we haven't paid attention to the gospel at all. Let me, let me give you some examples of what I mean by this drift. It's the long-seated bitterness that lingers in our hearts that we don't deal with. And over time, we have convinced ourselves that we are in the right and everyone else is in the wrong. It's the long-suffering for an injustice or an unfortunate event that happens in our lives and instead of coming to God for healing, that over time, we just end up blaming God for it. It's the constant busyness in our lives where we rationalize that everything we do is so important that I don't have time for God. I don't have time for church. I don't have time for my Bible because everything else is more important. It's the late night hours at the office that we convince ourselves that by me working late, I'm being a good provider for my family. All the while, what you don't realize is that every night at the office, you're losing your family just that much more. It's the social lies that we've been told that are masked under the guise of love that are actually opposed to truth. And it's the general apathy and laziness of our lives that causes us to no longer realize that there is something bigger than ourselves and we are the only thing that actually exists. Those are the sole, subtle aspects of drifting that happen in our lives. See, those are the things that 
we don't often realize before it's too late. And that's what Satan tries to do with us. It's not the plastered sin that everyone gets to see, but it's the little bits of deception, little by little over time, that we fail to address. And instead of hearing a message that was once loud and audible, now what we hear is the static silence of eternal condemnation. Proverbs 3. It says, My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you and ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. We take God's word, and what do we do? We hang it around our neck. It's always there in front of us. That every time we look in the mirror, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. That wherever we go, we carry that message with us. And people see that hanging around our neck and they ask us about that message. That's what needs to happen. That's what's going to preserve our lives. That's what's going to offer safety for us. A message of a gospel of Christ crucified. And so that's the message that we proclaim today. For some of you, this may be a first-time message. For some of you, you may be hearing that you are a sinner that needs a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross for you. For some of you, you may have heard this numerous times before. And you've stopped paying any attention to it. But a decision needs to be made about Christ. Because if you don't make a decision, that is an answer in itself. And there are consequences for failing to heed to the words of this message or failing to answer the message at all. And so as the author of Hebrew points you back to Christ, that is my desire as well. That you can have full confidence that you are loved by a God so much that he came and he died for you. He bore the penalty for you because he didn't want to be lost without you. That's how much he cares for you. We look at this world, we look at this creation, it, it screams of a savior, of a redeeming God. And so I plead that you don't drift. I plead with you that before you lay your head down tonight, that you would wrestle with that question and make a decision in your mind of who Christ is. And for us as believers, you know, this applies to us as well. Because we may have the relationship with Christ. Adam, I, I understand that. Yes, yes, Adam, I understand that. But have you drifted away in that relationship? When is the last time that you have spent some, some quiet moments praising him? When is the last time you have spent some time on your knees calling out to him? When is the last time that you've put yourself out there for the name of Christ? When is the last time that you utilize the gifts that he has given you for, for his ministry and for his kingdom and his glory? 
Or are we too busy as believers that we are so self-conscious and so self-focused on ourselves that I don't have time for God? Maybe that's the drift that has happened in your lives and maybe you need to take a walk today under the beauty of the stars and re-engage that relationship with him. We cannot allow our relationship with Christ to be like any relationship. It is the most important relationship that we will ever have. Is it a transformative relationship that offers life and death to us? And so we can't put this off and we can't wait any longer because see, drifting is a dangerous place because eventually you drift off the edge. It comes crashing down over the waterfall and we meet our death. But my desire and the hope of this author is that you don't drift, but as you pass by the rock of Christ on that river, if you need to paddle desperately to get back, if you need to throw the lifeline around it, if you need to get out of the boat and jump onto the rock and cling to it for the rest of your life, then that's what we need to do. Because that is the only safe place we can ever be. Let's pray. Lord, this message again goes out to those who, who don't know you. Lord, please, please enlighten the, the heart and the minds to those that think somehow there's something better in this world. And Lord, for us as believers, let us not take our relationship so nonchalant, so, so haphazardly, so carelessly, Father, that, that we weave in and out of, yeah, I have a relationship with you, but instead, Lord, we would cling desperately to you knowing that there is nothing greater in this world than knowing the power and the love of your Savior. Father, let it be a day for some of us to re-engage. Let it be a day for some of us to go forth and proclaim you. Let it be a day that perhaps I need to just simply sit down and answer this question. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the warning to us. And we thank you for bearing the burden of the cross. Amen.